This is an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. The battle against coronavirus has been called a war, and here on Manhattan's west side, a Navy ship has pulled into berth. The last time I saw this ship dock was in 2010 in Port-au-Prince after the earthquake in Haiti. And now it's here in the nation's largest city to help fight an unseen enemy, not with weapons, but with beds. A thousand hospital beds to alleviate the pressure on hospitals overwhelmed by patients with COVID-19. The USNS Comfort carries 1,100 medical personnel who will treat patients without coronavirus so doctors in the main hospitals here can focus. It's a cloudy day, and the hulking ship, nearly 900 feet long, bright white, stands out against the gray. A giant red cross is painted on either side and on the front. The last time the Comfort came to New York was in 2001, after 9-11, a clinic for rescue and relief workers. Here's what New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said after the ship docked. It's not just about the beds and the doctors and the equipment. It's also about hope. It's also about boosting the morale of New Yorkers who are going through so much. It's about saying to our heroes in those hospitals that help has come. The comfort will be ready to accept patients in the next 24 hours. And that relief for hospitals cannot come soon enough. Nikki is a nurse in one of the large hospitals here in New York City. She agreed to talk to us on the condition we did not fully name her or her employer. And she spoke to us from home because she now is sick with the coronavirus, one of the more than 66,000 confirmed cases here in New York State. Uh, Nikki, how are you feeling? I'm definitely achy. That's the biggest issue that I'm having in terms of the virus itself. Um, loss of appetite. I did notice that I have some loss of smell today. I have a very slight um, remainder of smell, but compared to what my usual sense is, it's it's very, very diminished. But I would have to say that my biggest complaint is body aches, and they're pretty intense. Um, it, it's almost like the the pain is generated from the bone. It's very hard to explain. I've never quite felt anything like it. I've had friends help me. Uh, I had a friend come bring me a portable oxygen monitor um, so that I can just keep an eye because from what we're hearing in the hospitals, um, if you do get to a point where the respiratory involvement becomes an issue, it happens pretty quick um, and without warning. So I'm just staying on top of it, being diligent, um, making sure I take care of myself, which uh, for nurses is never easy, um, but I'm trying my best in that respect. When do you think you contracted the virus? You know, I'm really not sure. Uh, I feel like Not to sound like an alarmist, but at this point, in terms of what I'm hearing and how the numbers are multiplying, it really makes you beg the question of where did you catch it? Now, I was working bedside with confirmed positive patients um, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of the week that I ultimately um, got my fever on Thursday into Friday night. So I have to assume that that was my point of contact um, in terms of transmission. So you're wearing protective gear. What's the supply of that like around the hospital? Because we've heard horror stories in different places. So the supply is not horrible, but I will say that there are other floors that we've transferred patients to um, where I see nurses without N95s. And there's a certain guilt in that, actually, when I'm transferring a patient and I have my N95 on and I'm, you know, 
assumed safe with that mask and then I'm handing care over to another nurse who's just wearing a plain surgical mask and I'm not sure what the decisions are being made in terms of how these masks are being allocated but um, there is a certain guilt in myself at least when I hand that care over to another nurse and I ask where the N95s are and I see that look of just sort of blankness in their eyes and it's really upsetting um, for me and my colleagues. What's it like generally in the hospital caring for all of these COVID patients? There's a heaviness in the air, um, an invisible heaviness on top of the fact, you know, besides the virus being invisible, there's a heaviness in the air that we just want to do more for these patients. Um, everybody wants to do all that they can. On the up note to that, the teamwork is off the charts. Uh, I have to say I've worked in some pretty intense environments as a med surge nurse and critical care bedside nurse and um, the teamwork that is being exhibited right now between nurses who don't know each other, don't have working relationships, is just amazing. Everybody's there. Everybody's offering a hand. Everybody's on top of it. How can I help you? What can I do? And um, it makes me really proud to be a nurse in, in, this, in this climate right now. So given the situation there, what do you say to people who are not adhering to all of the protocols? There's a reason why these recommendations are are being sent out to people. And it's because the influx of patients that is coming into the hospitals at this point is, is rapid. It's serious. It's making nurses who have not been bedside for 20 plus years get pulled from their original positions and thrown into taking care of very, very complex medical patients. We obviously can't stay home. We need to be out there. Um, I am staying home now because I have to, but as soon as I'm well enough to get back in, I'm in. You know, and I think it's important that people understand that your actions, just your actions alone, really can make a difference. While you're home recovering, any words to your fellow nurses? It's a really hard question to answer. Um, I'm, I understand the fear that's in all of us. It's, it's off the charts. Um, I'm just going to say, be careful. If you don't feel your assignment is safe, escalate it. Don't be, you know, I mean, they're calling us heroes, but don't be a hero in these respects. You have a life, you have a family. Make sure you have the proper PPE. Make sure you're stopping and thinking before you deglove and stay safe out there. Um, and I look forward to getting back out there with you guys. Nikki, our thanks and please a speedy recovery and well wishes to you and your fellow nurses on the front lines of this pandemic. You heard her implore all of us to abide by social distancing and other protocols. President Trump said those are going to last a little longer than he first anticipated. ABC News White House correspondent Karen Travers is here now. This is quite a switch from a president who eyed Easter as back to normal time, Karen. Oh, this is a major reversal from the president, Aaron. But he's now saying that Easter goal that he laid out last week to reopen parts of the country, he says that was aspirational. And of course, public health experts last week were really putting up the caution flags on this one. And now we're hearing it explicitly from the president's own top public policy experts saying Americans need to hunker down. But remember last week, it was six days ago, the president said he was hopeful to have Americans working by Easter. He said he wanted to see Americans getting into churches on Easter Sunday. Now, though, he's backing off of that and saying everybody needs to stay put for several more weeks. It wasn't clear what led the president to make the change, although undoubtedly he's consulting with public health officials. But he also seems, Karen, to, to have found a, a, a personal connection to this pandemic. 
Well, first on the expert side of it, Dr. Fauci was on Good Morning America and said that he had some intensive conversations with the president. And Dr. Fauci said, we convinced him, he listened. Because Dr. Fauci and Dr. Deborah Burks, even last week, were saying this has to be a day-to-day decision-making process. You can't just say, well, on April 12th, we'll do this. You have to look at the data each day. And Dr. Fauci said today that it's just not smart to lift these social distancing measures before this country has turned the corner. And that was a point that he said he emphasized to the president. But you're right. This seems to have gotten personal for the president. On Sunday at the White House, he talked about a friend of his who went to the hospital and one day later was in a coma. And the president said that the speed and viciousness of COVID-19 is really horrible, he says, if it gets the right person. And Karen, Dr. Fauci mentioned when he was speaking with us that the president's been asking him the question that we all seem to be asking. When does this end? Dr. Fauci said the president asked if the country will need to extend social distancing beyond April, because that's what the president has announced in federal guidelines. Fauci says he told the president he didn't think so, but it's a possibility. And it's really going to depend on how well people do those social distancing measures right now. I'll also note, Aaron, those guidelines from the president, which last through April, are just that. They're guidelines. They're not mandatory. And today we saw uh, the governor of Virginia say that this stay-at-home period is going to last until the beginning of June in that state. Maryland also took very strict measures today for the foreseeable future. So for many places, many hotspots, the president's guidelines aren't really factoring into what these governors are deciding to do. ABC's Karen Travers, who covers the White House, We wanted to note a passing. The virus that has killed so many now from all walks of life is blamed for the death of Dr. James Goodrich, a pediatric neurosurgeon famous for separating conjoined twins with intertwined brains. It leaves his colleagues at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx mourning as they fight on against COVID-19. And coming up, ABC's Amy Robach takes us to what may be the next epicenter of this pandemic, New Orleans. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. We're so happy you're with us. The big developments we're tracking today, more than 700,000 COVID-19 cases diagnosed globally, more than 143,000 right here in the U.S., and the number of states now on virtual lockdown growing to at least 37. With me now is ABC chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, a lot of questions today surrounding masks. There are now experts who say everyone should be wearing them, even if they're handmade. What do you say? Well, Amy, we are watching this story evolve, and I do expect it to change pretty rapidly over the week. Let me set the stage for you. The background with respect to masks, remember two different kinds, surgical masks and N95 respirators. N95 respirators are for healthcare workers taking care of sick patients. So take that out of the equation for now. All this news now this week is centered around surgical masks. The World Health Organization and the CDC have previously been very clear. They do not recommend them for the general public to protect us. However, they are used on sick people to prevent those droplets from entering the environment and therefore infecting others. And right now, what they're looking at here in the U.S. is evidence from Asia that that may be part of how they were able to to slow their spread of this virus because so many people in Asia routinely wear these masks. So, and I want to be crystal clear because we're in the setting of a massive PPE shortage. 
if the recommendations change here in the U.S., it would be to protect others and therefore reduce the rate of transmission. So I think we're going to be watching that closely this week. Right. The masks protect others, not yourself. All right, Dr. Jen, I know we're going to be checking in with you in just a bit. In the meantime, though, we turn to ABC's Kira Phillips, who's in Washington, D.C., with all of the latest headlines. Some of the developments that we're keeping an eye on here. Some Instacart and Amazon employees are extremely unhappy about the level of protections provided to them during this pandemic. Our Rebecca Jarvis with the latest on that now. Hi, Rebecca. Kira, a week ago, the Instacart CEO said this is the busiest time in the company's history with more and more Americans relying on the service to collect their groceries. Instacart is even hiring 300,000 additional employees to keep up with that demand. But the current employees, the current Instacart shoppers say they don't feel safe at work. They are asking for additional protection, including masks, hand wipes, hand sanitizer, and $5 hazard pay for each delivery they would also like the default for tips set to 10%. Instacart has now responded saying that they are manufacturing hand sanitizer through a third party and they will be giving that hand sanitizer to their shoppers. Just today, workers at an Amazon facility here in New York and Staten Island said they will be walking out because they don't feel safe inside of their quarters after some of their employees have tested positive for COVID-19. Kira? Rebecca, thanks so much. And heading overseas now, where the latest country under lockdown is Moscow. Authorities there have ordered everyone to stay home with no end in sight so far. And meanwhile, in Wuhan, the epicenter of the coronavirus, life continues to slowly come back to normal. Some of the malls there are reopening with limited hours while temperatures are still being checked and masks are required for everyone. Kira, thank you so much. And while the number of coronavirus cases are growing in the New Orleans area, we've been told the treatment of patients right now is currently under control. Dr. Susan Gunn, who is on the front lines there, is here to update us on the systems in place to prepare for what may come next. So thank you for being with us, Dr. Gunn, and thank you for your service. Of course, we appreciate everyone there on the front lines. A lot of experts are saying New Orleans may be the next coronavirus hotspot. What can you tell us about the state of your city right now? Are you able to treat everyone who needs care? We are absolutely treating everyone who needs care. Um, it, I was the intensivist on one of the intensivists on this weekend, and we were definitely busy. Um, patients are coming in. We are creating new ICU beds every day with the ability to be monitored 24 hours um, through our telemonitoring system. Um, as patients, as, as ICU beds are coming online, um, we are ensuring that patients are being placed into those um, beds um, who need them. All right. Well, that is certainly good news. Talk a little bit about the city's supply of equipment. Shortages have been reported or at least anticipated shortages in the next couple of weeks. Where do you all stand? We have plenty of ventilators. We have dialysis machines. Um, we certainly have enough PPE. Um, this is a um, an innovative city. We work in an innocent, innovative environment for sure. And um, we have the capabilities to create the PPEs that we need. And um, we are not seeing a shortage yet, um, but we, and we're staying ahead of the game um, when um, looking into different ways to be able to maintain the same um, level of um, care for all of our patients. Right. And in terms of, of the level of care you're able to provide will determine, obviously, on what these numbers are going to look like in the next couple of weeks. Do you see the curve beginning to flatten there or do you 
believe it may get worse before it gets better. We are just a month out from Mardi Gras, and once COVID arrived, it's only been three weeks to the day that COVID arrived in the city or was confirmed to arrive in our city. Um, we, once it arrived, it kind of made sense to us. Um, and now it's been a week since our spring breakers have returned. Um, we hope that the curve is flattening. I, um, I do have our concerns. We're seeing family units. Our city is a very um, um, family-oriented city. And so I, I'm concerned about our family units who are, be, who are bringing COVID home and not self-quarantine themselves within their own rooms. Um, as, as family members, as physicians, we want to be able to touch and care for our loved ones and for our patients. And um, it's a different mentality with this type of um, illness that is so easily um, spread from one person to the other. Yeah. So we really need to get out there and educate everyone that once COVID virus come home, not only do you need to social distance yourself from the general public, but also from family members. That's important advice indeed. Dr. Susan Dunn, thank you for all that you do and continue to do. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. Well, these days, so many of us find ourselves filled with constant stress and anxiety during this crisis. So experts around the world are joining forces to make the public aware of the benefits of meditation and yoga, not only on one's mental health, but our immune systems as well. And joining us now via Skype is legendary meditation expert Deepak Chopra. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I want to start by talking about this live meditation event you led yesterday with participants from around the world, thousands of people, all meditating together so tell me what that was like it was wonderful uh, actually at one point we had uh, a million people and the site broke down so i had to go on social media to continue it but it was a great feeling of relaxation and deep reflective thinking about how we can actually use this adversity to improve our well-being we're talking about physical hygiene but we're not talking about mental hygiene that's true. And you can see the need if you had a million plus people joining you. And you, along with the top scientists, are saying that there are strong benefits to meditation and yoga as it pertains to COVID-19 and our immune system. Talk about what those benefits are. OK, so when you breathe deeply or even slowly, if you take a deep breath and you consciously breathe deeply and you're aware of that, or when you practice any form of meditation, what happens is inflammatory markers called cytokines, they go down. When people are stressed, their sympathetic nervous system is on overdrive. They secrete cortisol, adrenaline, which compromises the immune system. On the other hand, with meditation, you stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, which causes deep relaxation, brings down inflammatory markers, and actually activates the genes in your body that are responsible for self-regulation or healing. So meditation does the opposite of stress, which is compromising your immune system. Meditation enhances your immune system. There are many mechanisms around this, but mainly it's activation of genes that are responsible for self-regulation and healing and also bringing down inflammatory markers, which are associated with morbidity and mortality. Yeah, so, so these studies have been done extensively now with many institutions. Deepak Chopra, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. And we are joined now by Dr. Jen Ashton for a look at some of your medical questions about the COVID-19 crisis. So, Dr. Jen, we'll move on to the first question. They ask, could we use CPAP machines to help fill the gap in our ventilator shortage? Would it help prevent moderately ill patients from being hospitalized? I like the way this person's thinking, but the answer is no, definitely no. And the reason for that is that CPAP machines and and other types of respiratory treatments can actually push pressure into the airway and cause an aerosolization of these viral particles, putting people in the room at greater risk. So CPAP, no for um, for COVID-19. All right. Our next question. Are medical professionals looking into the potential symptoms of loss of smell and taste as a precursor to the onset of the other common symptoms of fever, shortness of breath, et cetera? They are. And by the way, Amy, I had that. I had yeah. loss of taste um, last week. And so my radar was up as well. There have been some anecdotal reports that started to come out of the UK. As many as 30 percent of patients diagnosed with COVID-19 who also reported a loss in smell and taste. Now, we know with other respiratory viruses, you can see that. But ear, nose and throat specialists are really trying to study this to see if this is an early sign right now. It is not an indication for testing in and of itself, but it's definitely something that's on people's radar. Okay. Next question. I have lupus and take hydroxychloroquine. There are shortages nationwide, making it difficult for autoimmune patients to get their refills. What is being done to protect and make sure those who already rely on it daily to live will still be able to get their prescriptions filled? This is really important, Amy, and we started mentioning this last week. Pharmacies and pharmaceutical companies are trying desperately to ramp up production of hydroxychloroquine. It also goes by the brand name Plaquenil because people with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus need that medication every single day. So that's why when you hear a drug being tested in clinical trials, the verdict is not in yet. We do not know that this is going to be helpful for patients who are sick with COVID-19. And unfortunately, you know, the the train left the station and everyone tried to get get their hands on it. And right now there's no indication that that can help and it can also have risks. So it really needs to be reserved for patients who have been prescribed it, especially for autoimmune conditions. All right. This next question, and I've had a lot of people asking this, wondering this. Is it possible to have had COVID-19 in late January or early February without having traveled outside of the country? Short answer, I think it is possible. You know, we we have to remember that in China, they started seeing unexplained pneumonia in December. So with 10,000 people or more coming into the United States from Asia every single day before the travel bans were put into place, of course it's possible that some upper respiratory infections, especially in February, were COVID-19, and we just didn't know about it yet. But again, when we get those antibody tests, the blood tests to check if we've been exposed, 
that may be able to give us some detective work information on that. Yeah, it's interesting. My brother's a physician, and he said in February he was treating people with what he called SSV, some sort of virus. And so now the, the, the question <laughs> is right. whether or not that was actually COVID-19 back then. And so we'll wait and see when we get that test, correct? Yep. All right. Yep. A lot of people asking that and wondering it. Next question. I am a cashier at my store put up plexiglass sneeze guards on our registers between us and our customers. Can the droplets still go around the plexiglass sneeze guards? I think the answer is yes. There's still a lot that we don't know about how these droplets or viral particles travel and move. But it's an example. Cashiers, there are so many people in doing their job are putting themselves at some risk. So, again, that's why social distancing is so, so important right now. Just a study out in the last couple of weeks suggested that these big viral particles can linger in the air for up to three hours maybe longer. That doesn't mean they're airborne, but we know that the droplets can travel some distance in the air. So, you know, how high that guard is will determine how protected someone could be. All right. Our next question. Are researchers looking into why it affects certain people differently than others? Absolutely they are, and that's why we need to see the CDC, we call it the MMWR, the published case reports of the U.S. cases, because we need to understand who is at greater risk rather than just these giant categories of people with advancing age and certain underlying medical conditions. We know that. We want to do a deeper dive because, of course, we're seeing younger patients also becoming sick, in some cases critically ill. And so the more we can understand about the patient profile, the better it will be, not only to treat them, but also hopefully to prevent disease as well. There have been a lot of questions about our equipment supply status throughout this country. How are we doing? Where do we stand with all of that? Well, Amy, when you hear a lot about ventilators and ventilator numbers and need to manufacture more, but when you talk about surge capacity here in the U.S., it really depends on four S's, space, supplies, staff, and systems. And you've heard me probably say this before, ventilators are critically important, but they don't run themselves. They need respiratory therapists and critical care nurses. In a crisis like this, anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists can operate them, but with a ratio, it's not one-to-one. So, you know, there could be, let's say, four patients on a ventilator for one professional working with them. So it's not exactly the number of ventilators that's so important. Yeah, that's a factor, but it's really the healthcare professionals that operate those ventilators just as important. The other thing is when you hear about this ramping up of manufacturing, these are specialized pieces of equipment that take time to manufacture, and they need to run perfectly. So this isn't the kind of thing where we can cut corners and all of a sudden um, have, you know, hundreds of thousands of new ventilators. And lastly, um, in, in speaking to some of the government officials on our weekly calls that you know that we do here at ABC News, um, a very interesting and potentially helpful target has come up, which is that of mismatched resources. So I think we're going to be looking at that, meaning parts of a state or country that's not using ventilators, sending them to areas that do need them and then sending them back when they're done. All right, Dr. Jen, we appreciate it. Thank you.
And there is much more ahead here on What You Need to Know. Moving back in with your ex for the sake of the kids in the coronavirus pandemic. There are families trying to make that work. We're going to check in with one of them next. This ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know, continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. We are all facing massive disruptions to our lives, but especially for blended families, is it best to keep shuffling the kids back and forth between homes or is it time to put personal differences aside? Well, that's exactly what one family was grappling with before deciding eventually to hunker down all under one roof shared a lot of my story on social media and on my website, themoms.com. You couldn't have paid me or told me I would make a million dollars to ever live in a house again with my ex-husband. And now because of coronavirus, we are living together under one roof, not only with my ex-husband, but with his wife, her ex-husband, their two daughters, and one of my sons. Joining us now is Denise, Jordan, Laura, and Dan. Thank you so much for being with us today. And Denise, I'll start with you because you went from quarantining separately to now all four parents from this blended family under one roof. How did this decision even come about? Yeah, well, it was actually a very difficult decision. We all sort of went through different processes, but we decided we needed one home instead of the back and forth between two. And Dan was away with his kids, so he didn't want to come back into New York City. And so we all started the conversation. I was the lone holdout. I didn't want to go. They wanted to get out of the city. They would have been without kids for the duration. Um, I've already been sick alone uh, as a cancer survivor, and the thought of being sick alone is really what helped me make the decision to come under one roof because that's not a good feeling. I didn't want to be sick alone. And when you get divorced, you also are constantly being told that you have to do what's in the best interest of your children. And we all came together to really really decide that this was the best interest for all of the children. I mean, it's in, it's commendable. And I know anyone who's been divorced or who uh, has gone through a similar situation is is really thinking, could I do this? So, Jordan, you're the new face of, of a modern family during this corona crisis. Uh, what has it been like quarantining with the exes? How has this changed your relationships with each other? Well, it's been interesting. Um, I'm used to having breakfast with my wife every morning, and now I tend to have it with my ex-wife because my <laughs> wife is working. Um, we're having family dinners. I don't think any of us ever thought we would we would be doing that. Um, we're taking it very seriously. We're being very careful. Um, we, we basically haven't left the property in a very long time. And um, we're. Uh, I, I think that we're all going to grow from this as as a family. Um, and moving forward, when we do go home and back to our normal lives, I think we'll all be closer as a result. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is really remarkable, the four of you. Laura, I want to bring you into this because have there been some challenges with everyone living under one roof? There have been. Um, first, all four of us work, so we had to find space for us to all be able to have our work day in place 
privacy, confidentiality. The kids have online learning now or distance learning, so they have to have their place in the home as well. So we had to kind of be really organized and deal with those logistics. Um, and also just being exposed to each other's parenting routines, which we really haven't had um, before, and being respectful of each other's boundaries and what people need, and of course, always putting the kids first, um, which just keeps us on track to work as a team, operate as a team, and just do the best that we can every day. Dan, what advice do you have for other parents who have shared custody during this time? Would you recommend what you're doing to everyone? Uh, I would. Hopefully we don't need quarantining to uh, learn the lessons we've learned. But I think the, the looks on the kids' faces when we arrived here said it all. They were ecstatic for us all to be together. My daughters have another family, stepbrothers, stepdad, Denise. And this was an opportunity to get to know the people that are important to my kids. And we're actually enjoying them playing video games with my, my daughter's stepbrother and tennis with my daughter's stepdad. And we're having, you know, board game nights and dinner nights and so the advice is just try to get to know the people in your kids' lives, and whether it's in quarantine or when we're back to normal life. I mean, it's really beautiful. I am uh, very impressed with all of you, and I hope that other people take to heart the lessons you're learning the hard way but the right way. Denise, Jordan, Laura, and Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. We wish you uh, good health and uh, good spirits there together. Thank you. Thank you so much. Stay safe and be well. I'm ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jennifer Ashton with tips to help you stay safe during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you're having mild cold or flu symptoms that would not have driven you to seek medical care six months ago, stay at home and call your health care provider or local health department for next steps. Remember, hospital emergency rooms are already busy caring for patients. If you have mild symptoms and go to the ER, you could be putting more vulnerable people at risk. For more, go to cdc.gov. Listening to an ABC News special, COVID 19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Welcome back. We have Dr. Jen Ashton joining us now for her final thoughts on this Monday. Amy, I'm thinking a lot about timeline. You know, we've heard so much about numbers, and that's usually case count or people recovered, fortunately, or death count, tragically. But I'm thinking now in terms of time, this virus is less than four months old. We've really only known about it for just three months. And the time is the key factor in flattening that curve and in social distancing. People need to remember that what we see today actually represents something that may have happened two to three weeks ago. There's an incubation period of up to two weeks, and then it can take time for symptoms to develop and people to seek medical attention. So we all need to think collectively here about what we are all doing today that can help us two to four weeks down the road. It's no longer uh, acceptable to just think, oh, it's just a New York problem or a Washington state problem. We're looking at various states, various cities, Texas, California, Louisiana, Detroit. 
Everyone needs to understand that this could be in your neighborhood in two weeks. That's why what we do today is so, so important. Yeah, we are all in this together. And quickly, I know my kids were talking about it this weekend, so it's made the rounds to the younger group asking me, Mom, what's my blood type? Because there is now some research showing that potentially your blood type could affect how severely you get symptoms. Right. Very preliminary. It hasn't been peer reviewed yet data, but out of China suggesting that people with certain blood types were at significantly higher risk of becoming ill with COVID-19 and other blood types. Um, type O may be protective. Now, this is not going to be anything beneficial for the general public, but it could help stratify risk for healthcare workers. But again, it needs a lot more data. So right now, don't rush out and try to find out your blood type. <laughs> Dr. Jen Ashton. Thank you so much. That's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening to this ABC News special. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.